0: This is our third week looking at the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, as you may remember, is an Israelite, but he's living in exile in Babylon. He lives there among thousands of other exiles. We began two weeks ago with Ezekiel's vision of the Lord on his throne. Then last week we heard the Lord's call to Ezekiel. He is to be God's messenger to a rebellious nation. Six times in our passage last week, God called Israel a rebellious nation or a rebellious house. Ezekiel's fellow exiles in Babylon are men and women, God says, who are obstinate and stubborn. Men and women who are not willing to listen to God. It's crucial that we remember that background because this morning God gives Ezekiel his first message. It's a message for his fellow exiles. And the message is a warning. An enemy is coming against you. It's time to wake up and listen. This morning we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 3 verse 16 through to chapter 5 verse 17. If you're using a church bible that's on page 831. Beginning at Ezekiel 3:16 and I'll read just the first few verses of our passage. At the end of 7 days the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked man, You will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin but you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin, and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning. And you will have saved yourself. In verse 17, God says to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So we're to picture a city or a settlement of people. In these days, the threat of enemy attack was a real threat. If you didn't keep your eyes open, you could be taken by surprise. The problem is, of course, it's hard to keep your eyes on the horizon all of the time. People have to get on with daily life, working and eating and sleeping. So settlements would appoint watchmen, individuals whose job it was to keep a lookout. When they saw the enemy coming, they were to warn the city to make sure the city was not taken by surprise. Closer to our own time, we might think of air raid wardens in the Second World War. When the German bombers were on the way, The air raid wardens had the job of warning people. Take cover. Head for the shelters. And actually today, none of us can be on constant alert for terrorist attack. We rely on security forces to be on the lookout. We rely on security forces to warn us. But here in Old Testament times, the picture is of a watchman standing on a city wall. He's scanning the horizon all the time. He's ready at any moment to blow his horn and warn the people. Ezekiel is a watchman for Israel. And who is the enemy that he's looking out for? It's the Lord. That in itself is a shocking thing. But what's equally shocking is the fact that the Lord... Has appointed the watchman. Israel is not only rebellious, they're also complacent. They have a powerful enemy, but they're not even keeping watch for him. They have no awareness of the danger they're in. So the Lord, their enemy, appoints a watchman for them. The Lord is the enemy who sends a warning. The majority of our passage this morning will be taken up with the truth that the Lord is the enemy. But here at the beginning, we learn that He's not an enemy. He tries to take anyone by surprise. He's not trying to catch people unawares. He wants them to be prepared for His arrival. In fact, the Lord is the enemy who wants people to be saved from His attack. Look again at verse 18. When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. So Ezekiel is to warn. He is to dissuade people from their evil ways, and he is to do it in order to save their lives. If Ezekiel doesn't take his responsibilities seriously, he will be held accountable. So Ezekiel is to warn the wicked, but verse 20 says he is also to warn the righteous. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, and I put a stumbling block before him, he will die. Since you did not warn him, he will die for his sin. The righteous things he did will not be remembered. And I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the righteous man not to sin and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning and you will have saved yourself. In this context, the point is that Ezekiel is being sent to all. He is to issue God's warning both to those who appear to be wicked and to those who appear to be righteous. He is to announce God's warning indiscriminately. He's not to ignore anyone. He's not to ignore anyone, however religious or upright they may appear to be. Because, in fact, what counts is not what people appear to be, what counts is how they respond to God's word. Those who heed the warning show themselves to be truly righteous, and they will be saved. Those who ignore the warning show themselves to be among the wicked. No matter how righteous they may have seemed to be. So the genuinely righteous man or woman is a man or woman who hears God's word and responds to it with obedience. Someone has summed it up like this. It doesn't make any difference whether you've lived a notorious life of sin or have been a pillar of the church all your days. What counts to God is your response to his word. In a moment, we're going to see that Ezekiel is being sent to announce a terrible message. But here, before the message, we see it's pure grace that Ezekiel is sent at all. What enemy works to warn those he's going to attack? What enemy appoints a watchman for those who are too complacent to bother with a watchman? The answer is an enemy who doesn't want anyone to die. Here we're already learning something God will say directly in chapter 18 I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Repent and live. The Lord is the enemy who sends a warning. In the final verses of chapter 3, which I didn't read, Ezekiel is reminded of something he was shown last week. He's not free to say what he wants. He's not to adjust the message according to what people want to hear. Ezekiel is bound to deliver the message God gives him. In fact, God says, I will make you silent until I give you my words to speak. And chapters 4 and 5 record the first message Ezekiel is given. The Lord is the enemy who shoots to kill. We've all seen performers in city streets. If you go to London or New York or even Litchfield, you'll find people in the streets singing, playing musical instruments, miming, sketching. One of the popular ways of street performing is to paint yourself gold or silver and then just stand like a statue for hours. Every time somebody throws a coin in the bag, the statue moves a little, maybe just an arm or a leg, maybe a turn of the head. It's street theatre and we've all seen it. But why am I mentioning it? I mention it because God is about to send Ezekiel to perform some very intense street theater. The venue for this street theater is the Israelite settlement by the Kabar River in Babylon. Follow along with me as I read from chapter 4 verse 1 through to chapter 5 verse 4. Now, son of man, Take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then, lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the number of days, the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you forty days, a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege." Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt. Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people, using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, In this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, Not so, Sovereign Lord, I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. He then said to me, son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin." Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. Street theatre. A model, siege rations, and a shave with a sword. Imagine the scene here. Ezekiel lives among his fellow exiles. He and his wife live in a mud hut in the middle of the Israelite settlement. We'll learn about his wife later in the book. One day Ezekiel comes out of his house, maybe in the morning. He comes out just as everyone is going out to do their work in the fields or to do their washing down at the river. In the middle of all these people milling around, Ezekiel arrives in the main street. And he's carrying quite an assortment of things. Maybe his wife helps him to carry some of it. He sets it all down and he brings out a mud brick, It's about the size of two A4 sheets of paper side by side. The brick hasn't hardened yet. And Ezekiel begins to carve something into the top of his brick. A few people begin to gather around. Let's see what he's up to. It's a map. Oh, it's a map of Jerusalem. Now what's he doing? Look, mounds of earth all around the brick. It's a siege wall around Jerusalem. No one can get in or out of the city. No food or water can get in or out. Now what's he doing? He's making little soldiers. It's an enemy camp outside Jerusalem. By this point a crowd is gathering. Ezekiel finishes his model. Then he takes out a big iron pan, like a wok. And he stands there glaring at the model he's just made. Glaring at it with the pan in his hand. He looks like he's going to smash his model. Then, Ezekiel lies down. He lies on his left side facing the model he's just made. A few hours later, Ezekiel packs up his equipment and he goes home. The next day, same time, same place, Ezekiel sets up his model. And he lies on his left side facing the model. That becomes the pattern. Day after day, there's Ezekiel doing his thing again. For 390 days, the same thing. Then on the 391st day, there's Ezekiel. with. now he's lying on his right side. Somebody in the crowd says, How long was he on his left side? Someone answers 390 days, I counted. Someone else says it's been about that long in years since Solomon first built the temple in Jerusalem. But then Solomon started to worship other gods, and Israel followed his lead. Is Ezekiel saying that God is ready or has been ready to smash Jerusalem for 390 years? But he's held back. He hasn't smashed the city. He's been patient. But now Ezekiel has moved. Is he saying that God's patience has run out? Remember, the crowd who are watching Ezekiel are hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, they're in exile. But the city of Jerusalem is still standing and the exiles assumed it would continue to stand, God would never destroy Jerusalem. But Ezekiel's performance is saying that's exactly what God is going to do. The city is going to come under siege. That's the point of Ezekiel's very strange diet. Verses 9-17 to tell us that while he was doing his daily performance with the model of Jerusalem, Ezekiel was also on a very peculiar diet, a starvation diet. Now he may well have eaten more when he went home in the evenings, but at points during the day, he paused in his performance to drink a small amount of water and then to prepare and eat bread made with beans, bread which Ezekiel cooked over cow manure. God initially said it was to be cooked over human excrement. But when Ezekiel protested about that, God said, okay, use cow manure instead. What's the significance of this strange diet? Well, when he's standing there staring at the model with the pan in his hand, Ezekiel is representing God. But when he's cooking with his be- and eating his bean bread... Ezekiel is representing the people in Jerusalem. They're going to come under siege. Things are going to get pretty rough. Remember, when enemies attacked a city at this time, they had no planes to fly over and drop bombs on the city. If the city was well fortified, all the enemy could do was surround the city and wait. They had to starve people out. Ezekiel's strange diet represents siege rations. When you run out of flour, you bake with whatever you've got left. When you run out of wood for your cooking fire, you find something else to cook over. If you were to visit slums in certain parts of the world today, you would find the poorest people cooking over animal dung, or worse. Later, we'll learn that the siege will lead to cannibalism in Jerusalem. Parents will eat their children and vice versa. Who's going to do this to Jerusalem? Well, it will be the Babylonian army that surrounds the city. But the one orchestrating the whole thing is the Lord. Look again at chapter 4, verse 16. He said to me, Son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. This siege is going to be God's judgment on rebellious Jerusalem. The beginning of chapter 5 tells us about the final part of Ezekiel's street theater. He produces a sword, a very, very sharp sword. And he proceeds to shave off his hair and his beard. It takes a razor sharp sword to do that. In our culture, beards are optional for men. In Ezekiel's day, they were standard. They still are in parts of the Middle East. So it was humiliating to be shaved. Israel is about to be humiliated. After he shaved his hair, Ezekiel takes it, he divides it in three using scales. The point being that what's about to happen to Jerusalem is not random or haphazard. It's deliberate. It's carefully planned. It's carefully measured by the Lord himself. Then Ezekiel makes a little fire in the middle of his model of Jerusalem he throws a third of the hair on the fire. Then, using the sword, he slices another third all around the walls of the city. And the final third, he throws to the wind. At this point, someone in the crowd says, he hasn't used it all yet. I saw him put some of it into the folds of his robe. There's still some left. Ezekiel stops, he looks at the crowd, reaches into his robe and pulls out a few strands. He throws them on the fire too. The message is a message of total destruction. Some people might escape starvation in the city. Maybe they'll make a break for it. But they'll fall by the sword outside the city. Some will be scattered, some will hide, but they won't escape. Total destruction is coming. And in case we're still not sure who's behind all this, the Lord explains again. Look at the end of chapter 5, verse 2. I will pursue them with drawn sword. That's Ezekiel's street theater, a model, siege rations, and a shave with a sword. Street theater is great for getting attention. It draws a crowd, but it can be misunderstood. People can miss the point, and God does not want them to miss the point. So along with the acting, God gives Ezekiel a message to proclaim. I am against you. Again, follow with me as I read from chapter 5, verse 5, down to the end of our passage. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against my laws and decrees, more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem. And I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children, and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, Because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn sword." Then my anger will cease, and my wrath against them will subside, and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you. In the sight of all who pass by, you will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations around you. When I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke, I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. The Lord is the enemy. He is the enemy who shoots to kill. God says, Israel, you're even worse than the nations around you, and you will become a warning to the nations around you. Verse 16, I will shoot to destroy you. Verse 17, I will bring the sword against you. Well, what are you and I to make of this? Our first response is probably to be a little uncomfortable. Passages like this make us squirm a little bit. We can get a bit embarrassed by passages like this. You won't ever find passages like this in our daily bread. That's no offense to those of you who use our daily bread. But I doubt that Ezekiel 5.16 is ever going to be the verse of the day. I will shoot to destroy you, says the Lord. And yet, this is part of God's word. This is part of God's revelation of himself. If we ignore passages like this, our understanding of God will be deficient. It will be less than it should be. Each week I've been putting up a slide at the beginning saying that this book takes us into the heart and holiness of God. We will never grasp the heart and holiness of God if we shy away from passages like this. But we still have to ask, what are we to make of this? Three points. First, we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking, well, this is just an Old Testament thing. It's not. Try reading the book of Revelation. Try reading Paul's letters. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, the disobedient are objects of wrath. Whose wrath? God's. Or read Jesus' warnings of judgment in Luke 19 and 21. Jesus' message in those chapters sounds a whole lot like Ezekiel's. This is not an Old Testament thing. It's a Bible thing. If we're determined to avoid passages like this, we end up with a pretty slim Bible. Bible. Second, the message of passages like this is that sin and evil matter to God. Do you want a God who overlooks evil? Do you want a God who says, I can live with evil, rape, murder, abusive children, abortions, drug barons, it's just the way things are. It doesn't really matter. Do you want a God like that? No, none of us do. We want a God who brings justice. The problem is, of course, that we want to be excused of our own sin and evil. We want God to pour out his wrath on Hitler, but leave us alone. After all, our sin is insignificant compared to Hitler's, right? Well, according to Scripture, what is the greatest sin? It's failing to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. That is our greatest responsibility. Revelation 4 says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God is infinitely worthy of our love and obedience. Failing to give it to him is not just neglectful, it's evil. It's the root of all our other evils. We give our love to lesser things. We believe and we obey lies about God. We live by the assumption that he does not know best, that he is not worthy of our trust and worship, that there are greater joys than the joy of being in fellowship with God. So we can forget about Hitler. The fact that God takes sin seriously means we're all in trouble. (coughs) Romans says the wages of sin is death. We're all sitting on death row. And God is the executioner. Third, following on from this, our greatest problem then is God himself. God as he stands against us in our sin. Many people live their lives with a pretty neutered view of God. Another way to put it is that we live with a one-dimensional view of God. That's true both outside and often inside the church. There he is, dear old God, up there in the heavens, a bit weak, a bit watery, a bit tired, He looks down at us in our rebellion and he just longs for us to pay him some attention. He just wishes we'd be nice. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible stands before a sinful world and his sharp, sharp sword is drawn. His bow is bent. His arrow is on the string. And it's pointing in our direction. According to the Bible, our greatest problem is God himself. God stands against us in our sin. If we don't get a grasp on this, then the gospel makes no sense. Who cares about a saviour unless they know they need saving? Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you and I can grasp passages like this, then we have begun to grasp reality. We have begun to be wise. We have begun to see the God who is really there, rather than the God of our imagination. Someone has said, if we're ever going to know the light of God's grace, we must first reckon with the darkness of his fury. And he is gracious. As he stands with his bow pointing at our hearts, he sends a warning to us. He tells us about the darkness of his fury. And that's a sign of his grace. But in his grace, God has done so much more. In Ezekiel 3 to 5, our problem is spelled out for us. God is our enemy. If we read on in scripture, we find he's something else too. He is also our savior. In Ezekiel 3 to 5, God gives us a warning. We see him standing with his drawn sword. We see him with his bent bow. His arrow is pointing at our heart. But when we read on in scripture, we see God turn his bow on himself. At the cross, God himself took the arrow in the heart. God himself took the sword in the neck. And he did it so you and I could live. The cross tells us that sin is serious. The cross tells us sin and evil matter to God. He is the enemy of all sin. And in his love and mercy, he died in the place of sinners. The New Testament tells us God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. At the cross, our enemy has worked to reconcile us to himself. It was our sin that alienated us from God. We caused the separation. But he made the move to bring peace between us. And he made that move at great cost to himself. If we turn away from Christ, there is no way to peace. There is no escape from God's judgment. But all those who trust in Christ find that their enemy has become their savior and their father and their friend. One of our hymns says, Great is the gospel of our glorious God, where mercy met the anger of God's rod. A penalty was paid, and pardon bought, and sinners lost at last to him were brought." It's only when we understand passages like this that we see the true greatness of the gospel. And so we're going to respond to what we've heard by singing, Great is the gospel of our glorious God.